Hey everyone, this is Tim. Welcome to part two of my talk with Dane Davis. Dane will be getting the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Motion Picture Sound Editor's Golden Reel Awards on March 3rd. So I asked him to come on Tonebenders and walk down memory lane to talk about the many amazing films he has done the sound for over the years. If you go back to part one, which is episode 250, you'll be able to hear him talk about his long and successful collaboration with the Wachowskis. They started together on the film Bound and then worked together through four Matrix films and then all the way up to the series Sensei. In this episode, he's going to talk about his work and relationship building with other directors and dig into his latest project called Expats on Prime. This psychologically complex drama starring Nicole Kidman features excellent opportunities for the sound design to tell stories the camera is not showing on screen. But before we get to Dane, I want to encourage listeners that will be in LA during the Golden Reels on March 3rd to come on out and help support the sound design community as it celebrates the best in sound over the last year. You can get tickets at mpsc.org, but you have to act fast and get them by February 21st. And don't forget about our Tonebenders LA Sound Design Meetup on Leap Day, February 29th at 7 p.m. The sound community will be gathering at the Thirsty Merchant in Studio City on their covered patio to tell stories and share laughs with friends old and new. If you are coming out, please make sure to search me out and say hi. I want to meet as many people as I can that night. You can get full information at ToneBendersPodcast.com. Okay, let's get to Dane for part two of this great interview. In addition to the Wachowskis, I asked Dane about some of the other longtime collaborations he has had over his career. There are other people, uh, you know, like Curtis Hanson, I did like three movies for, and I think Alan Moyle in the early days did a few for, and Fred Olin Ray in the very, very beginning. Uh, it's the same thing. You just, you have to, it's a trust relationship you got to build. You got to make it so that the one thing the directors aren't going to worry about that day is whether the sound is going to be great or not, right? You just have to create that trust because they got to worry about, especially sci-fi and fantasy movies. They got so much to worry about. I went to Cal Arts, which is a perfect film school. It's very countercultural and experimental. And so I developed relationships there. And, and I was, even though I, I was six years as an undergraduate, because I was studying a lot of stuff. I was studying art and, you know, a lot of things. But I was finishing up my BFA. And, and this woman from New York, Betsy Bromberg, was doing her uh, MFA. And we kind of clicked. And uh, I ended up mixing her. Uh, her film, uh, I think it was 1980, uh, because I was kind of on the crew for her earlier feature that she made. But I'm still doing her film. So from 1980, I basically mixed all her films. And her they're very poetic. They're feature length, but they're extreme. They're non-narrative, extremely poetic. And it makes you, and now I do a lot of sound design for them as, as well as mix them. It enabled me, I don't want to say forced me to, but it enabled me to think on a hundred percent poetic, you know, subtextual level, right? Because these films, there's no foley. There is no surface narrative plot function to worry about. They're they're masterpieces. And she has a you know big following around the world. She does these amazing films. And they can generally only be seen in 16 millimeters. She doesn't really allow videos to be made of them. And she's working on one right now that I'll probably start on in a couple of months. And she's great with sound. I mean, for the most part, 
I just now develop sounds and she has other sound designers and several composers that generate stuff. She cuts it all. She used to cut it all in 16 millimeter mag at home. And I convinced her in, let's see, about 2000 to try this Pro Tools thing, you know, because she like a lot, you know, people from the art world, they're scared of digital. Digital was a scary word. I, I remember having an all night bullshit session with a couple of painters and, and a sculpture friend that I have known my whole life and they're super successful. And we're sitting around the fire outside just talking about what digital meant to them, you know, because it was, it just scared them shitless because that connection between the, you know, this paint and a brush and the canvas that's very real. And I said, yeah, I've always felt that way. And it's the same with music, right? Really a lot of hardcore musicians, they just won't go anywhere near anything digital, especially then, that's 24 years ago. It was very scary. But I just said, you know, in a way, my trackball is like a brush, right? You don't have DNA to build a paintbrush in your hand. You didn't evolve that. It's, you know, your your parents didn't have paintbrushes affixed to their hand. You had to learn to use that as a tool. It's inanimate. And, and I think it's an apt metaphor in a way. So somebody like Betsy Bromberg, <laughs> I had to very cautiously talk her through the idea. and and But she builds it herself. So it's different than working on narrative films. Uh, but creatively, you're thinking the same kind of stuff, right? It's all about groups of sounds and motifs and thematic connections, whether it's timbral or or density or rhythmic. A lot of the stuff that makes great sound design is uh, you develop and, and applies from non-narrative films. So I still go back that every time I, she does a film every two and a half, three years, and I, and I have to immerse myself in that world so I'm, I'm grateful for that and i and you know and i love her and we trust each other and i'm glad she keeps making films uh because that's what happens in the entertainment industry right a lot of great directors make great movies if it doesn't make money you never hear from them again and that's the big bummer because there are some people we made some incredible movies over the year that i think you know, are very underappreciated. I, that's another one. I mean, there are people like uh, one of my favorite all-time movies is is uh, Romeo is Bleeding. Yeah. Right? A Peter Medak movie. Everybody I talk to that's a cinephile goes, oh, my God, yeah, Romeo is exactly. Bleeding. Right? <laughs> Everybody knows that movie, but the public never heard of it. And I always use clips from it when I do lectures and stuff. It's an amazing movie, right? The storytelling and the process that we went through getting to that narrative structure was interesting, but Peter has directed other movies and he's still around. I, I was just working with somebody that sees him at the gym all the time, but you just think like what happened with Bound, you think is gonna happen with a lot of these really gifted filmmakers. But Romeo is Bleeding for me was another one of those sort of watershed portals into a different universe where, uh, because Walter Murch had taken over the movie and he was restructuring it. And and I just got there in the cutting room, and uh, you know it's, it was cut on film. So Walter was picture editing it. He was picture editing. Sorry, yeah. yes. Yeah. And ultimately, he he mixed it with Matthew Iderola. God, I must have worked on thirty five movies that Matthew uh, has mixed over the centuries. But uh, the first one with Walter. So with an ear towards the mix, he was the picture editor, and uh, and I had never gotten to work with him, and it was just kind of open season creatively for sound. 
because he was saying the stuff that I'm always thinking and I rarely get to say. And, and I, you know, I, I, I did a, a very interesting movie years later and the director used to refer to Dane's cockamamie ideas <laughs> because I, I was doing some crazy shit. You know, it, it was a movie called the forgotten with, uh, I'm forgetting it. Is that Julianne Moore? Yes. Thank you. I'm, I'm getting a little, I, I'm talking too much. I'm getting my <laughs> brand, I have the oxygen in my brain with Julianne Moore, but you know, it was, that was a movie where creatively it just had all these potential things. And I went to New York and went to all the locations and used the very high frequency sensitive mics and stuff. And I was tilting all the BGs up and down. And as her life gets, you know, more and more, she questions reality more and more. And But the director was so not into it. Hmm. And that's the opposite. That's the opposite. The director, he he was scared shitless of sound effects. He was a good director. He was a good writer. He'd made some really cool movies, but his sound design is is just not in his quiver of, of arrows. And so sometimes that happens, right? And here we were looking at Romeo's Bleeding, and I had all these crazy ideas. And, you know, Walter's said, yeah, let's let's do it. And he he threw out the idea of having motific sounds which I'd been doing in a, in a lot of films in, in in a way, but here I was, you know, the godfather of sound giving me permission <laughs> to try shit. And, you know, it was, it was kind of like every character had a bell, every character had a metal screech, and every character had some other kind of sound category. So it was about figuring out how to counterpoint all these elements and keep them as ambiences, but sometimes they'd come forefront Luckily, the, the composer, Mark Isham, great jazz trumpeter, was the composer. And Mark, you know, was doing exactly the coolest possible stuff, which never conflicted with the sound design ever in, in any way. And so it, it made, in fact, he would come to my studio and we just kind of, you know, dance around things. So it 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 made it possible to tease the audience with the subjectivity right, of what they're hearing. It's like, is that L train really arriving now or is that just their mental state because there's no L train anywhere around there? You know, you can, once you set stuff up in a poetic compositional kind of way, uh, you can get away with a lot if people are are into it, if it's not distracting. For sure. And on that movie, the right, that, that threshold of distraction was very high. <laughs> And I mean, right, and, you know, and the Wachowskis have a very, always a very tight threshold of distraction, right? Like if any sound starts to be about the sound and not about that beat in that character's journey, it's out. <laughs> the sound is out, it's, it's, you know, so you develop a kind of discipline for that. But here was a chance to try the craziest stuff uh, ever and it stuck and and Walter and Matthew mixed it. I just think it's an incredibly passionate and powerful movie and and you for those of you that haven't seen it, I don't know I don't know if I should say anything about the the setup, but it, uh, you you know you have I mean I'll just say Gary Oldman plays a cop in New York City. He's basically a cop's cop, right? He oversees. Corruption and Lena Olin plays a Russian mobster who's moving in on the New York, you know, crime world. So here you have this political conflict, and Lena Olin, probably the sexiest woman alive at that time. Uh, people knew her from the incredible lightness of being, and you could just see what the, the what the Gary Oldman character is facing <laughs> in these conflicts. So these sounds are representing 
his rational side constantly being undermined, <laughs> forcing him to make a lot of incredibly terrible decisions. And it was fun to be part of the storytelling for him to make these terrible decisions. So anyway, that's a good one. But, you know, I expected to be working with Peter a lot and, and that didn't happen. And uh, so you never know. You just never, never know which relationships are going to pay off. Well, you mentioned earlier your experience working on Sensate and how you did not enjoy the television experience. And yet your most recent project is a pretty high-profile television series for Prime, uh, Expats. How did you get reeled back in? You know, it's always about the artistic direction. You know, I mean, I'm very proud of Sensate and I'm super glad that we did find a way to do it. I, I really am. It was just the logistics that were course, bad. Yeah. Nothing else was bad. It was just the logistics. You know, we had done, and the same thing happened with uh, the show Messiah for Netflix after Sensate was done. Some of the Wachowskis' creative team were doing the show. Steph Flack, my, my co-supervisor, and we said, no, 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 you know, no, never, 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 <laughs> never. And James McTeague, who was one of the two directors, he was kind of, he was the director all through post that we'd worked a lot with. He was the first AD in all the Matrix movies. Uh, and he was kind of the, the lead onset producer for Matrix 4. And James sneakily sent us three scripts for Messiah. And we read them and said, OK, you know, we're in. This is an amazing story being told. So, so we did that. And it was it was pretty great. You know, we had the resources were just on the edge of not being possible to make it sound like a movie, but we did. And, and we're glad that we did. And and then uh, Lulu Wang had this project and I'm a, you know, I'm a big fan of Lulu, Lulu Wang's as a writer director. Uh, it was called Expats and I was kind of available. So I kind of jumped in and I, and I watched it and I said, this is, is this is amazing. I mean, this is a very, sophisticated, very assured director of character. And it has an amazing cast. So it was the same kind of thing. And I was basically brought in to do sound design of a 48-hour-long storm. That show is a feature with episodes before and after. Uh, there's a feature length. It's a 92-minute episode five. And that's what I worked on. In the end, they couldn't really do a theatrical because he created conflicts for the Emmy Awards. And there was a lot of sort of political things. So in the end, it's streaming. But the fifth episode is is an hour and a half. And, and I watched it and was just super impressed. And I could see how this storm uh, had to be a character. And I love that, right? That's what hooks me. Here's a character. Right. And a lot of these, the spaceship, obviously the character or the ray gun or, you know, whatever, the, the cave that they go through. Right. The alley that the characters walk through. It, that is the character. And, and I, that's what I'm interested in developing is that kind of thing. So I just kind of went insane, uh, you know, and create, I did, I, as always, I, I, you know, I created this vast library of water sounds using uh, you know, some tools, some grain tools, and I've recorded a ton of ton of water, and I and I love rain. I we um, you know here in LA, we just survived this <laughs> atmospheric river that I had the joy of driving through for three hours uh, last weekend. Oh wow! And rain, you know, water is very scary, and I and I knew it had to be a little bit scary for these characters because 
the show Expats. It's about expats. It's about people that aren't really from Hong Kong. They're living in Hong Kong. People in Hong Kong, they get pummeled by these horrendous storms and they don't think anything of it. But all these Americans and British people and Australians and and especially the Filipina women that are the, you know, the the help for all of these families, they have to deal with it. And Lulu had these great ideas, kind of like the rich people, which is one set of characters. Their apartments, their condos, are on the top of the hill. They they live in Victoria's Peak. The rooms are all double insulated. So there's this massive storm pounding the shit out of the city. And the rich people are insulated. They don't have to deal, right? Whereas even their live-in help, who is which is the other half of the story, even the, the rooms that are kind of built as servants' quarters, they're single insulated glass. So even, you know, that's a perfect metaphor for the class system that the show is ultimately about. So that appeals to me. Like, how do we feel the, the water pounding on the window, but also in the roof that to show how exposed this helper class is and the way that the the affluent people are just kind of skating across the top. So that was fun. Uh, but like I said, I just developed this giant library of every, you know, water hitting every every kind of material because there's a lot of scenes. And, and in the end, it was a challenge because, you know, of course you have scenes where the storm is destroying buildings and you have this delicate music. So I part of the way I approach things I go to the stage with an array of, of density possibilities, right? A spectrum, because I know sometimes that the sound design is going to be very upfront, and sometimes it's not going to be, and it still has to tell the story. So, but here I was, you know, it was it was it's Amazon, it's not broadcast, and Lulu only agreed to do it if it could be at her feature film standard, and and I think it really is. It's a very powerful show, devastating. Nicole Kidman, personally, I think it's the best work I, I've ever seen her do. The character arc is, is uh, you know, it's devastating, but it's done a subtle way. One thing I really liked that the sound did in that show was illustrate her interior thinking. There's lots of moments where, you know, it's shots of her face. And the sound design is what kind of helps the audience, like, navigate through her emotions. That's normally a music's, music's job, but a lot of time in that show, the sound design did a big role in that as well. Yeah, thank you. Filmmakers, they understand the audience usually knows their hand is being held by the music. They don't notice the other hand. <laughs> and this was one of those examples. And some of the sound design is very kind of musical. You know, we had to evolve the sound. I don't know. Have you, you seen the first three episodes yep. probably? Or have you seen all of it? I, I have seen the first four episodes, actually. Four now. Great. So the fourth is out. I, I'm now excited for number five that you just told me about. <laughs> oh, yeah, five is insane, but four is super interesting, right? You, you said, because they, I, I don't want to say too much. I, I hate spoilers. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> because of where the characters go in the storytelling. Yeah, it those environments uh, are crazy. I mean, I worked really hard of it, on it. And there's a whole, I'll just say there is a pulse. You know, there's a one second pulse that is expressed ultimately or manifested by a, a clock. Uh, a broken clock at eight o'clock, but all of those environments have all of these sounds that are subtly, you know, pulsing around a second and musical subdivisions of of a second. And and uh, it was very. And there's no music. 
I think there's a cue at the very end. And Lulu said, Lulu and uh, and Matt Friedman, the, the main editor, said, we're going to really try to not have any score in this. And it's, right, it's an hour of two people sitting in quiet rooms. <laughs> For the most part, they're just different quiet rooms that the different, you know, different pairs of people are in. So I said, great. You know, I mean, that got me excited. And but I had to come up with sounds that could uh, continue. This is a bit like Romeo is bleeding in a lot of ways. It's funny putting, you know, juxtaposing those two projects. But I had to connect everything with that pulse, whether people are stuck in a broken elevator, you know, hearing this shit, or if they're, you know, in the noisiest section of Hong Kong in the four story apartment, they have to be bridged in a way to connect it, but also have a very distinct doorway that we go through with, with the camera, you know, between those people's lives. Uh, it was very fun. And, and I mean, four in particular, but in all the episodes, there is the sound of, uh, of the toy dogs in the market. You know, it's a, it's a street market. And the story kind of hinges around what happens in that street market. So Lulu really wanted a very evocative sound of those toys that we could use as a sound design motif and then abstract it a lot into various degrees. It ends up being quite musical. Just developing this sound was tricky, right? Because the production was horrible. They sent me a giant box from Hong Kong with all the toys and, and they're all the cheesiest sounding things ever. you know. And I started out using that sound and Lulu saw right away that it doesn't emotionally work at all, the real sound because they seem very small. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and in real life, the toys are pretty small. They're like five-inch toy dogs, and but they just do this. I can't even make a sound that high up, uh, you know, because of the transducers that, yeah, that they're using. You know, it's a super tiny, tiny sound. It's wrong. It's just story-wise, the wrongest sound ever. And Matt, so the editor, had cut in something that he had been playing with, and then I took that sound and started playing with it. And he was experimenting with using different pitches of that same sound to kind of make a sort of thicker thing. And the original toys had slight variation, but not very much. And, and he was using, you know, much closer to thirds and, you know, fifths and musical intervals, uh, which, which did accomplish the sense of being bigger than life. But then I investigated, I took the original sound and it was a sound effect recorded for a movie, but it was a recording of an actual other toy, an educational toy. You're, you're asking for trouble. We threw that out and, and I had to create a new dog toy sound. And, and I only had, you know, 1400 recordings of dogs that we've done <laughs> over the years. Uh, and there was this Italian, uh, what do they call it? Italian racing dog. Uh, that a friend of mine, they had a couple of them, and they brought them to the studio years ago, and, and we ran them up and down the halls, and then we put them in a room, and they had this very emotive bark, and they're Italian greyhounds, right? They're the strangest-looking dogs. They're so elongated. Their legs are super skinny, and their noses are super long, but they made this cool sound. It had a depth to it, the harmonic content of that sound sounded bigger than it really was. And I and I think since story-wise, that's what Lulu was looking for. So I took that sound and tried, you know, having different pitches. And and once we found something that worked abstractly over the, like you said, when you're just looking at Nicole's character's face, the, the interior sort of psychological sound representation of her emotional state, 
I cut it in. We read it on the stage uh, in, in a scene, and, and it worked for Lulu. So that's one of those moments where, okay, we're on the right track. But then I had to make it work when we're in uh, in episode two. It's the real thing. It's the literal setup. So we're looking at these little dogs, you know, and uh, and, and the sound worked great with that. Why at one point we played the real sound. The real sounds like three octaves higher. I mean, it's it's wow. it's crazy. The the real sound seems so incredibly artificial. Uh, it was funny just playing even before I'd made something else. Watching it on the big screen. You you didn't connect that sound mm -hmm. with what you're looking at, and it's literally the sound. And we all learn in our journeys, right? That's often the case that production sounds don't work for the audience; they don't tell the story. Sometimes something that's contrived is immediately accepted as real uh, over the real thing. So that was the trick, and then it became in all those scenes, like any sound design motif, you know, figuring out how abstract, how subtle before and after you learn what the literal mm -hmm. sound is, how much can you throw at the audience without confusing them? And as is the case with 90% of sound design, the audience processes it as part of the music. <laughs> That's just part of our cross to bear as the non-music contributors. I know composers that have gotten jobs based on the sound design I did in movies that they scored because people assume those sounds are part of the score. Uh, and a lot of times, the sounds in the score, I, I did the, the movie uh, Sinister, you know, a few years ago, and the composers, they just create all these crazy sounds that are totally sound designing, and it all worked great. So in a, in a, I think a lot of people credit me and, and, and Paul Hackner maybe with what the composer's team was coming up with and putting in the score. So it does work both ways. It's the abstraction. For me, it's all about uh, which window the audience is processing that auditory information through. Right? It's either the characters are experiencing it uh, or not. You know, either the characters, it, the audience is... Like like I said earlier, everybody knows this. The audience is usually aware that they're being led by the music, unless they're completely unsophisticated. So it and it's okay. It's like I call it the "where is the cellist" effect. <laughs> if the audience is wondering where the cellist is in the score, something's wrong. And if you know, and if I make a sound that the audience is not questioning where it comes from, then something's wrong. You know, and you can use diegetic and, you know, there's a vocabulary that I never heard in the film industry. I never heard that academic vocabulary ever until about five years ago. It started to pop up on mixing stages. It's like, oh, <laughs> no audio professional will be caught dead saying diegetic, believe me, <laughs> for a lot of years. You know, and I do it. I've done, you know, I continue to do lectures and interface, but I, I knew and I've read the books, and, you know, but uh, here was a case where if the audience should care about the source of that auditory information or not. And I get into fights on some movies about that, sometimes with the music department, and I, I question it. And I, I have a lecture that I've done a lot of times called What is Not Music, <laughs> which is my job, you know, what is not music. And I, I'm a musician. I play a lot of instruments, and I compose, and I, you know, I, I, I have a music theory background. I mean, I understand what music is, I think, but no one knows what music is. Every audience, I ask them, and no one has a clue. <laughs> but it's big, right? And, and that's a whole big topic. But I, I know that, you know, music is 
defined by people in a specific cultural time and place, mm-hmm. right? Everyone else's music is noise. So you can't say it's something that has rhythm you can, because everybody hates every other cultural representation. Uh, you know, right? If you're into rap, you really don't like Bartok. And, you know, if you're into Bartok, you know, although people like me who kind of like everything, uh, but most people don't have that kind of broad grasp. So that's what it gets down to. Does the audience identify those sounds as being uh, intentional in in a musical way? or not. And I think even with expats, those sounds are musical. And, and and I'm very careful to avoid Western musical uh, structures of any kind. And that uh, mostly is harmonic, right? Like as soon as you start to use anything, things like thirds, Western music is all about thirds and, you know, minor and major thirds. And I just know that if I stick to that, it feels too musical. And I've worked with a couple of composers that have appreciated it and and you know commended me thank you thank you for avoiding anything that's my suggestion of a minor or a major right because that's their territory i can't go there that's 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 murder that's murder that's a first degree manslaughter violation <laughs> so so i know that going into it so i kind of avoid it being too musical for a lot of reasons because it could conflict with what the composer is doing but also because then the audience is going to write it off as a cellist sitting somewhere off screen. Hmm. And I don't want that. I want you to be, you're looking at Nicole. I want you to be thinking she's experiencing this. Yeah. This is going through her head. This crazy beep, 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 beep. It worked for me with expats and it's worked even going back to eight mile. The, there's lots of interior moments in that as well. Thank you. I, I, unfortunately, we got to wrap this up, but uh, thank you very much. Oh. This was really awesome. Congratulations on uh, your uh, upcoming uh, win at the MPSCs. I'm going to actually be there, so I will see you there and shake your hand in person that night. Fantastic. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, if anyone else wants to go, you can go to uh, mpse.org. The awards are on March 3rd. We're going to have a great time that night, so hopefully others can come as well. Hope we see you all there. Thanks a lot, Dane. It was great talking to you. It was great, Timothy. Thank you. I really love speaking with Dane. He is an amazing raconteur. If you want to come out to the Golden Reel Awards and help celebrate Dane's Lifetime Achievement Award, as well as the best in sound design over the last year, you can get tickets at mpse.org. That's on March 3rd. You only have till February 21st to get tickets, so jump on it soon. Also, don't forget the LA Sound Design Meetup on February 29th. Full details at tonebenderspodcast.com. On behalf of Dane, my name is Tim Muirhead. Thanks for listening and telling your friends and colleagues about Tonebenders. We'll talk to you next week when Richard King will be our guest. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? ToneBenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. Tone